You are listening to The Pilgrim on the 405 with Will Christ. Join him as he and his guests discover how businesses thrive in California. Well, welcome to The Pilgrim on the 405. We have a great conversation ahead of us today. This is one of my favorite entrepreneurs in the world. One of my mentors, one of my close friends, and uh, going to be even closer in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. Welcome, Todd Smart, long-term EOS implementer on his way to new and great things and uh, founder of Traction Tools. But don't tell that too loud. Todd wants to, to wants to be very quiet about this for the rest of his life. So, Todd, welcome to the Pilgrim on the 405. Thank you. So, so Todd, you, you've been in, I think you've been an entrepreneur for 30 years, right? Yeah, this is my 30th anniversary this year. I'm 53. Congratulations. Now, as, 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 as a, you know, an implementer, consultant, uh, watcher of businesses, you must have learned lots of things over those 30 years. And I, I, I'd just be delighted to spend the next uh, 35, 40 minutes hearing you share what you've learned from watching and uh, thinking about entrepreneurial businesses. You know, happy to share a number of things. Um, in thinking about our time together, I, I was jotting down some notes. And and one thing that I want to say about my own growth and learning is that over the 30 years of being an entrepreneur, I've had much more failure than success. Just fortunate to have a couple of successes as part of that uh, from the failure. But and, and everybody says that it's, it's cliche, right? And, and true. What's been even more aggressive in my professional growth has been being a coach, a growth coach, an EOS implementer for a bunch of that, but also facilitator and trainer and coach within YPO, the Young Presidents Organization, and EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization. And it's just a repetition of situations and obstacles and barriers and pain that I get as a coach and a facilitator and a trainer that has fast forward my own professional and personal growth. And I'm really grateful for those opportunities and for my clients. And one of the things I want to start with talking about, though, is um, now I've had 90 plus leadership teams that I've coached over the last decade. My half of them that are the fastest growing, there are, there are half of them that grow between 20 and 100% a year, just on fire, taking over their industry, dominating a niche. There are four things that I've noticed that are in common amongst the folks that are growing the fastest. So again, these are the four things that my fastest growing clients have in common. And the first one of those is that they are decisive in their people moves. Decisive in their people moves means that they don't dilly-dally, they don't procrastinate, they don't put off being bold and decisive around their people moves. This does not always mean firing somebody. Please don't hear me through that lens. This often means hiring or moving somebody laterally or changing their accountabilities or responsibilities within your firm. But there comes a point with people moves where you get clear in your quiet time and you just know that this person is not going to work for you forever. There's going to be a time when you part ways. Usually between that time of knowing and the time of acting on that, 
is miserable time, however long that is, whether it's a day or it's a year. So the teams that win the most for me and get their improved business results the most are very decisive in their people moves. So take that away as something, if you want to be the best leader that you can be, move those things as fast as possible. The second of the four things is training. All great organizations that are growing the fastest become known as great training organizations. They obsess about it. They invest time and money, considerable resources in the training, and they are constantly working to be the best training in their industry. Very similar things to say about culture, the third thing on the list, that the best of the best and the fastest growing firms are obsessing and investing in their culture through good times and bad. They're finding ways to attract the right people, people that are like them, and repel the others and have fun working together, loving the people they're working with and having fun. Quite literally, when I look at these cultures that are growing the fastest, it's like everybody that's there is saying, it's just a great time. It's fun to come here. I love working with the people I'm working with. And that's the, the foundation around obsessing and investing in your culture. And the fourth thing is celebrating sales. In the world, there are people that we refer to as the sales prevention department. And if you have people in your organization that are part of a sales prevention function, you don't get to be a fast growing business. So you must have an organization and a culture that celebrates sales. Leadership teams that I've been coaching where the sales leader will announce about how they won a huge account, brought home a whale of a deal, and the operations department lets out a heavy sigh and throws up their hands and they're like, that's just going to mean that we're going to have to hire 10 more people. And the sales leader apologizes for first closing the deal. Those organizations don't close because those sales leaders go work at other firms that celebrate sales. You cannot have leaders, other leaders and functions within your business that are not celebrating sales, that are complaining about growth, you will not be a growth firm. So those are the four. And so I've started to see them as four non-negotiables. If you want to be a business that's growing fast, that you're decisive in your people moves, training, invest in, invest in the culture and celebrate sales. Does that reconcile, Will, with what you've noticed in your client Absolutely. Base? Absolutely. I, I, was talking to somebody just about 30 minutes ago about having, having when I was a Sandler trainer, training salespeople, uh, you know, doubling the revenue only to see that the back end blew out of the company and people were very disappointed, which really created chaos and utter, utter dejection for the salespeople because they thought they had brought in this wonderful thing but it really hurt the whole company because they weren't prepared for it. And that was one of the things that caused me to become an EOS implementer, to work from the top. These have not always been things I've practiced as an entrepreneur. I'm embarrassed oh. to say with hindsight, you know, ah. uh, especially the decisive people moves. And, and I think not spending energy or time on the, all four of these things um, certainly slows down growth. So, uh -huh. yeah, absolutely. So now, now to your transition. You want to transition <laughs> over to unique ability? Absolutely. So unique ability is a Dan Sullivan concept. 
Dan Sullivan has a company called the Strategic Coach. EOS has a version of this same concept called Delegate and Elevate. And the short story on this way of thinking is to identify your highest value activities professionally and personally and identify your lowest value activities professionally and personally and find a way to do less of the low value activities and more of the high value activities. I very purposely say this in such an elementary way so that it occurs for people like, well, no kidding. Of course, of course I should do less low value things and more high value things and my life will be better. So getting it intellectually is one thing. And then I find very few people are great at this in practice. They have a lot of things that they feel like they should do. Like, oh, well, I'm the president of the business, so I should do these types of things, even though I don't like doing them and I'm not very good at them. And personally, it's like, well, I should fix that thing in my backyard, even though I don't like doing it and I'm not very good at it. Um, I love to be spending the time with my kids at the pool rather than fixing that thing in my backyard. You know, this is where you find... And so let's talk about, so there's two stages of this. The first, there's, you must have some level of self-awareness and go on an inquiry inside and, and, and find the things that you love to do and you're great at. These things often give you energy. You would do them for free if you weren't being paid. You're better than most people you know at these things. So identify the things that are your high value activities, often looking across those criteria, things that give you energy, your top one or 2% of it. And, and you'd often do it for free if you weren't being paid. And then identify the things that are on your plate personally and professionally that you dread, procrastinate, and avoid. They often drain your energy through the process of dreading, procrastinating, or avoiding them. And you often do poor quality work. Sometimes you miss deadlines because of all the procrastination. These are not absolute ways of describing the lowest value things on your plate, but it is a great place to start the inquiry. One, so that's stage one is identifying the high value things and the low value things. Then you must get very deliberate about what you're going to do with these high value things and how you're going to transition your time that you save to the high value things. In a professional setting, well, how we get deliberate about jettisoning the low value things is we either delegate them to a existing or a new w-2 employee sometimes we find a contractor or a 1099 or somebody off upwork and low value things in our personal world and we want to delegate those to people who find them high value work in their personal and professional world right ideally yeah you're delegating to somebody that's like your work opposite uh -huh. Somebody that has a, a skill set that's 180 degrees from your skill set. Mm -hmm. So you're not taking a shit task and handing it to somebody else who perceives it as a shit task. You're mm -hmm. taking something off your plate you do not like and you're not good at. And you're giving it to somebody that says, oh, goody, I love doing that. Yes. I'd, I'd love to have more of that to do. So that's the delegation. And it can be a W-2, a 1099, or a vendor. You can also find ways to stop doing those tasks. Sometimes you can simply stop it and that, and you don't have to give it to somebody else to get done. And sometimes uh, you can automate these tasks. You know what but, I found? You know what I found? Uh, for years, I, I coming from a frugal family, 
I would uh, attempt to take small appliances and when they broke, repair them. Sure. They sure. were, it was, it was difficult work. I was always anxious about it uh, because I really wasn't very good at it, but I felt like I had to. And when I took the Colby assessment and it, it showed me that I was a fast start and it also told me what I was not. And it explicitly said, do not attempt to repair small appliances. <laughs> that gave me That's so good. much permission. I don't ever do that anymore. I either I either hand it to somebody who can or I throw it away. <laughs> yeah. So much of the way that we're wired and the way that we make decisions is based on our past. And we we owe it to ourselves to raise our self-awareness and give it some critical thinking to, to good decisions for ourselves. Uh, my, my father changed his own oil um, late, late into life. Uh, and he was a successful small business owner. And yet this is one thing where he'd shop for the filters and the oil on sale. And, and the net net of it is he was saving himself like 16 or $18 by changing his own oil. And um, and just never considered that he should do it any other way. Yeah. And, then on the low value things, you spend three to six months figuring out how to delegate, stop or automate. And then you have to be very deliberate about how you're going to refocus your energy on the highest value things. If you just leave a void in your capacity there, just random things will fill up your time. Things are coming at you as a successful person at, at light speed, right? And there's a hundred times more things that you could do that you don't have time for. And so don't let the time you free up by jettisoning these low value things randomly fill up, get super deliberate about the highest value things, add them to a scorecard in your organization, someplace that you know, you're going to get more of this on the personal side. For me, the easy example is a home handyman, whereas I spent a Saturday uh, about five years ago trying to fix some bifold closet doors it's just a pain in the butt project especially to do on my own and it included three trips to home depot and seven eight hours later i still didn't have the tasks done and i was miserable and my kids like went to the park in the pool that day and i could have been with them and i looked at it and then when i did hire a professional to do it he got the work done in two hours it was 35 dollars an hour so it cost me 70 bucks whereas i invested seven hours i'm 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 doing work I hate to save $10 an hour. You know, even just, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yes. So, so be very deliberate about the things that you jettison and very deliberate about what you let onto your calendar after that. And, and there is a book called unique ability from Dan Sullivan that goes into this concept deeper, completely worth spending time on it quite literally it is you doing less of the things that you don't like and you're not good at and doing more things that you love to do and you're great at. How would any rational person argue that this is a bad idea? I mean, get busy doing this across all areas of your life. Right. All And, and, and that means taking a serious, open and honest look at your calendar, talking to people around you, getting feedback from people who are close to you. And taking all of that seriously and, and getting rid of the things, assigning, I appreciate that automate. I hate paying bills and I don't do a good job of it. I have 
between you and me, don't make this public, but I have neglected, procrastinated paying electric bills twice in my life. It all had nothing to do with money. Absolutely nothing <laughs> right. to do with money. But my wife was furious. And so now it's automatically paid every month by the bank. Yeah. Yeah. You just find a way, get those things permanently off your plate, and then deliberately choose high value things in their place. Yeah. I'm not paying electric bills or gas bills or anything like that. I'm having a great time talking to my friend Todd Smart. So that's great. Um, another very common thing that some people would say, oh, you can't do that, is delegating all of your email and calendar. And I've dealt, and I've, I don't, I don't have an email address that I am accountable for checking anymore. I do get information and email serves a function inside my businesses. Yeah. Um, but delightful shift. And, and a lot of people would say, oh, that's not possible, but I'm telling you it is. Yeah. Well, it certainly made a huge difference for me when I turned it over to my assistant, turned over two things, running my calendar. And you know, you notice uh, between you and me, neither one of us. Uh, messed around with when can we do this uh, conversation it was done by our assistants and i looked in yeah. it, I looked in the first of the week and said oh great i'm going to have a conversation with todd this friday because they yeah. put it in there she takes care of my calendar she takes care of all my email and gives me the four five six ones that are important for me to look at every day yeah yeah and if any listeners are saying well that's great if you got a bunch of cash and you can afford an assistant Oh. It is a, the way to get the cash to afford the assistant is to identify the high value things you do professionally and do more of them. And they generate like 10 times the financial results that you need to pick up the assistant that takes care of the low value things for you. And so, you, don't have to start, you don't have to start off with a full time assistant who's sitting in your office next to you. Virtual assistants, you can get them for a couple hours a week or whatever you need at a very right. good price. And they are they can be highly competent yeah fantastic fantastic folks Let, let's go on and talk a little bit about BHAG and vivid vision and driving belief in an organization you ready to transition to that sure so with all good goal setting systems there are a couple things that are done to drive belief one is most commonly in the work world referred to as a BHAG Inside the EOS land, um, it is usually called a 10-year target or a five-year target. And this is a big, hairy, audacious goal, as the BHAG acronym would have it. And it is something that does not alter your future in five or 10 years. In the articulation and the declaration of this, it affects your present. And when you and your leaders are speaking to these things that are that have to be big enough um, to scare you, it, it, it should make you uncomfortable and scare you a bit. And it's bigger than you've imagined in the past. And you're driving this belief throughout your organization. It's super important that you and the rest of the leaders come at it from a when perspective. You say when it is the year 2031, this is what's going to be true about us. And it's coming at it from a when, not an if, that makes a big difference in how you speak this. And when, and I refer to this as enrollment 
Um, enrollment is a little like selling all of the stakeholders, those are your employees and your customers and your vendors, all the people around your business. That enrolling all of the stakeholders in this future, coming from a confident place where you're saying, when this is true, this will also be true. When you have all of those stakeholders completely believing that that's what's going to turn out, the chances that it turns out skyrocket. So you declare something big on a 10-year horizon, and then you bring something down to three years out, 24 to 36 months in your future at all times. You have a vivid visual of the future. Cameron Harold has a book called Vivid Vision that speaks to this. EOS has a tool called the three-year picture. All good goal-setting systems have a visualization component because of how it increases the ease of belief. You must get all of the stakeholders, again, your clients, your prospects, your employees, your vendors, your partners, you must get all of them believing that this future is coming. Not in a, in a might-happen way, in a it's-going-to-happen way. Let me tell you how. And as part of articulating this vivid vision you come up with, here, let me tell you a story. This is what it's going to be like. Picture yourself in this. This is where it's going to be. And, and what you're not saying explicitly, but is completely implied, is this is a great place to work right now or a great place to be a customer. But don't go anywhere. It's going to get even better here over the next 24 to 36 months, this near future. Stay right here. Strap your safety belt on. Let's go for a ride. And so on the 24 to 36 month, the about a three-year time frame, and out on the 10-year, the bigger picture, it's really critical for both of these that you're driving belief by coming at it assumptively and confidently and speaking with it with a, from a when perspective, not an if. I find so many people see goals as hopes or dreams, or maybes, or even stretch goals. And I just tell them to take that language out of your vocabulary. Do not use it. We're not talking about, about stretch, maybe, possible. Um, this is what we are predicting. And we have to get better at predicting over and over in those those 90-day, those uh, to-dos, those one-day, uh, one-week to-dos. They help us learn how to predict better so that we can begin to predict our one-year uh, plan, uh, the, the results of our one-year plan, the results of our three-year picture, and even the results of our BHAG, our 10-year, 5, 10, 15, 20-year uh, target. And, and, it's that, and I, can, I can see visually in their body language how that changes for them because it means it's not just we're committed to it. It's it's we're predicting that and we're going on the line with this prediction, not because we can, uh, you know, somehow divine the future, but we're going to create that future. We can see it and we make that happen. So I agree with you. Absolutely, Todd. It's it's changing from hopes, dreams and possibilities to sheer prediction. This is what's going to happen. Yeah, prediction and driving belief amongst your folks right? That it's just so powerful. You get a group of people completely believing that something's going to happen. The chances that it happens skyrocket. And it is the job of leaders 
to be driving the belief on this. And the person that they have to sell or convince first themselves, <laughs> themselves, themselves. Well, you and gotta remember, buy. You gotta buy it. Gotta buy into your ideal future, and um, before you're gonna be able to go there, right? And, and remember what Dan Sullivan said uh, about once we have, uh, once we have a clear prediction, then our eyes and ears are going to begin to see and hear the things that we need to see and and do to bring that about, to pave that road, to make it happen and, and, and it's not even a conscious have to make it happen it it begins to float up into our consciousness because our eyes and ears are looking and waiting for it searching it out yes yes we create our future it doesn't happen to us mm -hmm. yeah yep i love that um Again, you must allow yourself to believe in it and all your leaders. If you have a particularly skeptical leader, often this would be like somebody with an engineering or a finance skill set that prides themselves on being the naysayer or skeptical. Have a conversation with them. Talk about the psychology of driving belief throughout the whole organization. And they have to allow themselves to believe and get on board. There's a time for healthy skepticism. This is not it. Uh, and, well, and, and this is not kumbaya, right? This is not uh, uh, if, if we if we think it, it'll come. This is not uh, the secret. This is right. is is actually sitting in front of the um, the easel with uh, a wonderful canvas and all the paints, the various paints that you want, and before you apply that brush seeing what you're going to see and then mm -hmm. allowing your brush to bring it about and it's it's not always exactly the same it it may be it may be i'm going to have a picture or it may be as precise as it's going to look exactly this way with these colors and this kind of brush strokes but it's it's really getting clear about what i'm going to see when i'm through and then allowing my hands to bring it about. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's crazy powerful. But you know, a, a vivid visual for your future and then enrolling others in it. Okay. So when, leader, when leaders and organizations are sharing this confidently and with their people, um, it further reinforces for themselves that we're going to create this. Because they say to themselves and to them, each other, now that we've said it in front of the whole company, for damn sure we're going to create that. I'm not a leader that's going to show up there and paint this rosy picture and not make it happen. Let's get busy making it happen. So there is a little bit of self-placed accountability that comes in the bold declaration of these things also. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, well, and it's also then how good is your word? That's the test. Yeah. We're, yeah. I'm standing here and predicting this. I'm claiming it. I'm seeing it. Uh, I'm 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 committing to doing whatever it takes to make this happen. And then if it doesn't, and I have not done everything that I can do, then that's on me. Right. And right. I don't want to do that. I mean, I don't want that to be on me. So I'm not going to go the extra mile to make sure that happens. Yeah. Yep. I'm with you. Let's talk about helping entrepreneurs retire.
Okay. This is one thing that I brought up to you in our pre-call conversation. Uh-huh. But I am really excited about the helping entrepreneurs retire part of my life. I'm doing this work under my smart partners brand, but it's um, what I'm, what I'm really jazzed about is helping folks in their seventies sell a business and maintain their legacy or enhance it through taking care of their people and their clients. And I'm just on a rampage. I feel like after 30 years of entrepreneurship and 10 plus um, businesses that I've been a part of in an equity way, either startup or partner, um, again, with more failure than success. But at this juncture, I feel like my knowledge of entrepreneurship and leadership and running a business, my network for finding these fine entrepreneurs to help retire and my access to capital have all come together like a trifecta. And I helped my father sell a small business when he was 69 years old. And as we reflected on it, we're like, thank goodness that we sold that when we did. And then, then it went on to make the the following decade of his life, um, a new chapter that was awesome. And up and up until the day he passed away, he passed away just this spring, um, March of 21. Um, but right up until that, he took enormous pride in what he left behind, the business that he'd sold 10 years prior and about how his people still worked there and the clients were still clients. And I get how important that is. And so, Will, I've got a, a an outbound initiative and a, and a really active endeavor over this next decade, 10 years of my life, where I imagine helping six to 10 entrepreneurs retire, businesses between three and 25 million in revenue most of the time, sometimes larger. But just businesses where it, it's important to maintain it, these are profitable firms. Sometimes because of how long the entrepreneur has owned it, the technology hasn't been updated in the last 10 years or so, that's okay. That gives an opportunity to improve the value, you know, after purchase. Sometimes there's not the future-focused leadership team in place, and knowing what you and I know well about how to build leadership teams, right. you know, building, bringing that knowledge to it. The other thing that I'm really passionate about, given the amount of SaaS um, businesses that I'm a part of, is reoccurring or repeat business, reoccurring revenue or repeat customers. And so I have very simple criteria on the businesses that I'm going after and that I perceive value in. And it's, you know, that there's a solid profitable business there and it either has some kind of reoccurring revenue or strong repeat business. It says something about the quality of the service or the product. And in that, with just those couple criteria is how I'm filtering things initially. Um, there's a ton of opportunity. And it can also, you know, the families that are selling these businesses um, are welcome to participate in the next round too. I have a number of founders or business owners that say, yeah, I'd love to take some cash off the table right now. But if myself or my family could participate in something even bigger five or 10 years from now due to the growth, 
that comes with building the a great future focused leadership team and having a solid foundation to start with makes growing from there so much more possible. So if you've got readers that are in their seventies with a, with a smaller medium business or know of somebody that's looking to retire, that would be really interesting to me. And even if I'm not the right one, my network is really incredible. I, I say um, with tons of humility and gratitude just full of awesome folks and I can often help connect them to somebody that can help them with where they want to go with that. If I'm not the one, you know, Dodd, uh, this is the first time I really realized what you just talked about to me, uh, just gave me some great sadness. That's what didn't happen for my father. Uh, he, he owned, uh, he owned uh, an auto, auto parts store. Uh, it was part of a network of 10 auto parts stores in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas uh, that my great uncle started. He had, the, he had the warehouse and then these 10 stores he gave to his brothers and brothers-in-law. And uh, my father, uh, it was my grandfather that, he, that my great uncle, um, Laura Grindle, gave it to. And then my father and his brother bought it from my grandfather. Uh, but then when it came time for my father to retire, he did not have a, a, a way to sell that business. And that was a great sadness for him. In fact, I think it caused his dementia and 10 years. I think it just really hurt him that he wasn't able to provide for the family by selling that business. He, he eventually sold it to somebody who was not competent and it failed. Um, and I realize now that's what I do for many companies is helping them prepare for this transition, this family transition, or, uh, to, to sell it to, uh, you know, to, to, to another competent party. But, uh, that's my father did not have access to the kind of, the kind of system, the systematic preparation for retirement of a business that uh, uh, that you and I provide people every day. And that, yeah. that's, that is sad for me to really think about that. I, I, I never thought my father was incompetent uh, and I saw how much pain that caused him and that he had, had internalized, but I, I never understood what the real solution would have been. And it, it would have been, the kind of thing that you and I do. And, and maybe that's why I, that's why I take such joy in doing what I'm doing because I couldn't do it for my father at that stage of my life. Right. Right. Imagine if your father would have run into somebody with your skill set five years before he wanted to retire and they could whip the business into shape and tee it up for retirement. I have about two of my coaching clients that sell their business every year. And the most common thing that I hear, because they're they're talking to the the acquisition folks within a large company, is the most common way this works. Sometimes they sell to PE, and it's it's usually to PE or a large firm that's buying them. And they say this is the most well-run small business we've ever acquired. Yeah, yeah. That's because of working with a coach like you, Will. Yeah, and. Um, and so for me, as I think about my entrepreneurial 
like uh, victory lap as a 53 year old. And I look at this next 20 years. Um, I'm excited about helping some entrepreneurs retire. It would be fine with me if they were not already doing EOS, that they just had a solid business, but then I'll bring myself or my team into place, you know, to, to put the professional implementation of a growth system like EOS there and um, get the future focused leadership team while taking care of all the existing employees um, and just taking a business three to five times growth over the next 10 years. Let's get busy growing faster on the solid foundation that's here. And if the family wants to hold on to a third of the business or 20% of the business to, to get a second payday five or 10 years down the road, that that could be wonderful. I'm also interested, I have four children, and I'm you know, training them on entrepreneurship. We talk about it all the time. And um, I'm also open to some of these businesses being in my portfolio until I die, you know, and just mm-hmm. being passed on to another generation. Mm-hmm. On, a, on, a, on a little bit of a side note, when you talk about kids, um, I talk to my kids all the time about how all they have to do to succeed in entrepreneurship is be great at something. Just be the top one or two percenter at something. It can be anything in life. I don't care if it's gymnastics or math or a language or playing the violin. It just doesn't matter. There are so many opportunities out there in the world. And so when I'm coaching my kids, they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, I don't know what you're going to do either. But just try to be your best at everything that you touch between here and your mid twenties. And you're going to discover something that you're really great at and you love doing. And I can show you how to build a business around that. Right. Right. You know, this is possible for everybody out there, but you have to get out there and really put your heart into trying everything. It's up until the age of 25 or 30 that you have to be like striving and trying and get driven and, and, and go across a wide variety of things and allow yourself to be drawn to the things you love. Mm-hmm. And then you know, entrepreneurship is so malleable or flexible and powerful that you can, you can then go ahead and, and figure out a niche leveraging that thing that they're great at and build a business around it. Well, entrepreneurship so, to me, you know, the, I remember, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, people were putting together entrepreneurial strategies in, in universities and in business schools. And it was, it was, it was a strange thing, but what I'm discovering uh, and, and COVID, the COVID experience just made it even more real for me. I'm discovering that the major piece of entrepreneurship after you discover what you want to do is taking responsibility for creating the next part of your world. Sure. sure. And, and, and if, if you want it to be profitable, then create that possibility for profitability. And it's people like you and me who can really, who can ring the bell and attract people and help them do that. It's just so important that, that taking responsibility not blaming others and not blaming my experience or the experience of my forebears or any of that. It's simply taking responsibility. And 
that is is I, I just so get so excited when I see people actually taking taking that uh, that step to own what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Well, well Todd, I'm, I'm challenged. I'm challenged to to find more people in that in that space, that five year space when they're looking to looking ahead uh, about what they're doing. Um, we'll have to talk more about that. Yeah, yeah. I I really appreciate you having me on today. Well, this is this has been great. Well, thank you, Todd. Uh, uh, we're going to share this with with a lot of uh, share with my clients and share with a lot of people and. Because it's it's really the the kind of things that you can share with folks inspire them to take the next step and 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 often taking the next step means you know uh, my unique ability may not be teaching my company and training my company I may need some help and I may want some people to come in and show me how to prepare for the next stage. Yep. If you're listening to this. And you're a business owner between 10 and 250 employees. Get in touch with Will. Have him help you with your growth coaching. He's the man. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Todd. And uh, now, now you're, you're taking off for a, a, a trip around the world. When are you leaving? Not exactly a trip around the world. More modest than that. We're taking the, the family on the road and we're working remotely. And um, we're going to... Um, we're going to explore what it's like to take a family of six on the road for a couple of years. Excellent. Remote work and remote school. Yeah, it should be an adventure. So this is the, the nomad life, right? I don't know what you call it. We'll see. <laughs> I'll let you know what to call I, it. I, I have, I have a book it. called The Nomad Life. I'm going to share it with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, so in effect, in effect, I won't notice any difference because you'll no. just be doing the same thing we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, just going to be not tethered to a geography for a couple of years. All right. All right, right, Todd, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for for spending time with us. And folks, this is just another example of how businesses thrive, even in California. You've been listening to The Pilgrim on the 405 with Will Christ. To hear more of the programs in this podcast, go to www.willchrist.com.